Hello and welcome to HipCast, the podcast here to improve hip fracture care. My name is Neve Ramsey, Research Assistant at the Australian and New Zealand Hip Fracture Registry. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation as the traditional custodians of the lands we live and work on, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Joining me on the podcast today is Professor David Scott, an anaesthetist and director at the Department of Anesthesia and Acute Pain Medicine at St Vincent's Hospital, Melbourne. We will be discussing the Balanced Delirium Study recently published in the British Journal of Anesthesia. Welcome, Professor Scott. Thanks very much, Neve. To start with today, can you please share a little about your professional background and your research group? Sure. So uh, I guess my clinical background is as an anaesthetist, as you described, and also I'm, I've got a strong interest in acute pain medicine. Um, and my anaesthetic practice has been mainly cardiac, vascular and regional anaesthesia. And I guess that overlaps into my academic background, which mirrors those interests, but also extends into neuropharmacology and then into cognitive outcomes after anaesthesia and surgery. And that's where... Um, uh, my current research group, which we sort of teamed up about over 20 years ago now, uh, started to look into cognitive outcomes uh, following anaesthesia and surgery. And the group is is uh, got three of us who are sort of the, the founding leaders, if you like, of the group. That's Associate Professor Lewis Everett. Uh, she's a neuroscientist. Associate uh, Professor Brendan Silbert, who's a uh, academic anaesthetist and myself. And we've also got a small team of, um, uh, which includes a neuropsychologist and postgraduate research assistants. So we've expanded uh, our cognitive outcomes research to look at post-operative delirium in particular, and also biomarkers for neurological injury um, to investigate factors and strategies which might decrease post-operative delirium uh, in particular and other forms of neurocognitive decline. Okay, thanks. For the Balanced Delirium study, what was the motivation behind it? And can you briefly outline the study design for our listeners, please? Sure. So um, this is, I guess, the background that I've just described is what led us to propose um, the Balanced Delirium substudy, which we're talking about today, because delirium is such a significant bad perioperative outcome. And I know all your listeners recognise that already. It has enormous impact on patients, uh, their carers, their families and the healthcare system. And whether that's in fractured neck of femur patients or cardiac surgical patients or just older patients having surgery in general. And because the brain um, really is the target organ of anesthesia, it makes sense to investigate things like the type of drugs used, but also to the dosing of those drugs. So the key question we we posed was, would limiting the dose or amount of general anesthetic provided to older patients to a safe but lighter level result in less impact on the brain and better cognitive outcomes. So the ideal trial to study this was already just uh, just underway. That's the, the main balanced trial. This was in 6,000 patients, a comparison of light versus deep anesthesia using a processed EEG monitor, the BIS monitor, which is widely available and should be well known to many of your listeners. So the primary outcome of the the larger balanced study was to investigate all-cause mortality at one year, comparing a BIS value, which is a, a depth of anaesthesia value of 50, compared to a BIS value target of 35. Now, just to put it in context, a BIS value of less than 60 is generally regarded as sufficient for hypnosis and general anaesthesia. But generally speaking, most anaesthetics tend to float around the 40 level of BIS. 
So this was a randomized controlled trial with the other factor control being blood pressure, because obviously if you change the levels of anesthesia administered, you also impact potentially on, on the circulatory system. So the idea was to support the, the blood pressure so that there'd be that would not be a confounder uh, in the analysis of the different uh, anesthetic depth levels. So taking that framework, abyss of 50 versus abyss of 35, lighter anesthesia versus deeper anesthesia, uh, we designed a study, uh, a sub-study of balanced, where we co-recruited eligible patients to assess um, cognitive outcomes. And we did this by assessing their baseline cognition, including baseline delirium, and then post-operative delirium over five days, uh, measuring, the, assessing the patients twice daily using either the CAM ICU if they were intubated in intensive care or the 3D CAM, the three-minute diagnostic version of the, the, the confusion assessment method. And also we assess cognition at discharge with the MMSE and at 30 days in one year with the AMTS um, to look for cognitive change. So with uh, in terms of assessments, we looked at the intervention assessment. So the, the actual target BIS, was that achieved at 50 or 35? And also the duration of burst suppression. Burst suppression is an important element of um, EEG monitoring in anesthesia uh, because it represents short periods of basically EEC, EEG flat lining in between bursts of activity. And it, it indicates a significant depth of anesthesia, a significant degree of cortical activity suppression. So burst suppression has become uh, a factor that we also want to measure, and we were doing that as well. And I, I just want to point out that this, to, this is the only study that has this sub-study that I'm talking about and presenting is the only study, study which has really looked at two targeted levels, a targeted level of in this case of, of deep at 35 and of lighter anesthesia at 50. Right. You mentioned the eligible patients included in your study. Which patients were recruited and do you think they were representative of the elderly surgical population? Uh, yeah, we were recruiting patients who were uh, 60 years or older. Uh, they were sicker patients, so patients with an ASA physical classification of three or four. So they did have some uh, degree of, of comorbidity. Uh, they needed to be undergoing major surgery, which was going to take two hours or more, and the, with a planned uh, hospital stay of two days or more, two, two nights or more. So patients were excluded if they didn't, couldn't be involved with either of those parameters or they weren't having a volatile anaesthetic, um, and they were also excluded if they were identified with baseline preoperative delirium. So we... Ended up recruiting um, about uh, 547 patients uh, for this study. Uh, of those, 36 uh, were unable to be um, for, fully studied because of various administrative reasons. So we ended up with 515 patients uh, who were in the study and randomised to one of the two groups. And look, they were representative of the elderly surgical population. Their mean age was 71 years old. Um, one third of them were women. Uh, I guess the uh, in terms of operative procedures, and we're talking about, you know, translating this to the fractured femur uh, population, uh, about a third of, two thirds of these were cancer patients having intra-abdominal surgery. So that is an important difference. So only about 4% of the patients were actually orthopedic patients. But they did have a high, as I mentioned with the ASA, they had a high comorbidity stake and their mean, median Charlton comorbidity index was around seven, which is quite high. Right, okay. And what were the major findings of the study? Well, the main finding of the study were, first of all, that we achieved our BIS targets. So the median target in the, of the 250 
three patients in the fifty in the BIS fifty group. Uh, we targeted at a level of fifty one, which is great. And for the two hundred sixty two patients in the BIS thirty five group, we were targeted a mean of thirty eight. So we had good separation of BIS values, and that was reflected in the end tidal concentrations of, of volatile anaesthetics as well. So. Those with the lighter anaesthetics had a lower end tidal concentration, 0.59 versus 0.79 end tidal for the deeper anaesthetic. And as I mentioned earlier, the suppression ratio or the uh, burst, time in burst suppression uh, was, was much shorter in those having the lighter anaesthetic. So a median of two minutes compared to a median of 5.3 minutes in the deeper group. So those, those targets all, all mean that we, we achieved our intervention objective. Um, the main result of the study, which was the incidence of post-operative delirium in the immediate post-operative period up to five days, uh, was significantly lower in the, the group that had the lighter anaesthetic. So 19% of those patients compared to 28% of those in the deeper anaesthetic group. So that, that resulted in odds ratio of 0.58 and was significantly different. Um, if you took look at absolute risk reduction, that was an absolute risk reduction of 9.7% um, in the BIS-50 group or a number needed to treat of about 1 in 10. Um, interestingly enough, most of the delirium occurred on days 1 and 2 post-operatively and not surprisingly to all of your listeners, uh, the post-operative delirium was... So it, the delirium itself was associated with increased ICU admission, increased length of hospital stay, increased myocardial infarction, and uh, some cognitive changes later on as well. So that was a delirium outcome. The primary outcome was uh, significantly different. And the other outcome which was of interest was cognition. So there was no difference between BIS levels, depth of anesthesia levels at seven days and three months. But at one year, the AMTS uh, was higher in those who had had the lighter anaesthetic. And in fact, nine, only 9% of those patients had an AMTS of six or less, which indicates severe cognitive or significant cognitive impairment compared to 20% in the BIS, uh, the deeper anaesthetic group. So overall, um, the findings were um, in support of lighter anaesthesia being associated with uh, lower uh, incidence of delirium. And um, also, but we also confirmed that delirium itself is associated with significant um, negative outcomes. Interesting. Although you mentioned only about 4% of the study cohort were orthopedic patients, do you feel the results of the study could influence current care of hip fracture patients where the incidence of post-op delirium is much higher? Uh, look, I think we can learn lessons from this study, which we can translate, yes. Um, but perhaps I'll frame it uh, in terms of my views on the approach to anaesthesia um, for hip fracture patients in relationship to post-operative delirium. And, and I, I really just want to talk mostly about the anaesthesia pathway because I know um, there's considerable ex expertise in your audience related to so many aspects of care. But we all know that the best approach is a bundle of care. and orthopedic, geriatric groups, the ACSQHC, they all um, recognise that um, the, the bundle of care approach is, is the most effective way of preventing delirium. Um, what's important, I think, and we, we confirmed this, is that it's really important to evaluate preoperative cognitive status uh, as part of baseline assessment and also to identify whether patients have had preoperative episodes of, of delirium. And one of the reasons for this is obviously to assess risk, but the other is so that you can actually have the conversation, particularly around the anaesthesia and surgery, to advise and discuss of the risk 
of post-operative delirium and cognitive decline. When it comes down to type of anesthesia, there is some recent literature which adds to our own study and, and in, in ways which we need to consider. So um, the first is uh, a paper out by Mark Newman and his group called the REGAIN study, uh, which I think many of you readers will be have either participated in or, or, or know well about. So it was in the New England Journal of Medicine with 1,600 patients with femoral fractures have randomised to receive either spinal versus a GA. And they found no difference in 60-day mortality uh, or, or mobility, um, or nor post-operative delirium, for that matter, which was 20% in each group. So what does that tell us? Well, that tells us perhaps that um, at this stage that there is no difference, broadly speaking, between spinal and GA in those groups. But remembering they did have sedation uh, for the spinal. And we just want to talk about spinal itself. Um, there's uh, the STRIDE study by Fritz Sieber and his group, which uh, was from 2018, where they looked at 200 patients having uh, femoral fracture repairs under spinal anesthesia with sedation. And the sedation was titrated to a sedation level. It wasn't titrated to BIS, but they did measure the BIS and found that in the deeper sedation group, the BIS was floating around 57, and in a lighter sedation group, the BIS was floating around 82. And there was, again, no difference in post-operative delirium between uh, the deeper versus lighter sedation groups in the spinal anesthesia patients uh, in, the, in that study. But remember, they were having uh, sedation as well. The only exception is those with uh, a low comorbidity index. So the, sub, the, the, group, the subgroup of these patients who had a, a child in the comorbidity index of zero um, actually did show a benefit from lighter versus deeper sedation. So it's probably here we're seeing an effect which is only apparent when there aren't other overwhelming comorbidities which, which might influence outcome. So then we come to our study, I guess, which is uh, looking at the general anesthesia side of this. Now, there is another, another large study out there um, which was called the Engager study. Every study seems to have a fancy acronym and this, right. <laughs> uh, you can't get funded if you don't have an acronym and so the engages study uh which was from michael Abadan's group um was published just a year or a year two years ago 2019 now and they looked at all types of surgery patients 1200 patients roughly having all types of surgery over 60 years old and they were randomized to get either have a bis but looking at decreasing burst minimizing burst suppression versus not not using the BIS and just standard of care. So again, it wasn't comparing two target levels. It was one group aiming to decrease the likelihood or decrease birth suppression, the other group aiming to, to just be standard of care. And what they demonstrated was that uh, they were able to decrease birth suppression seven minutes in the, in the intervention group compared to 13 in the non-intervention group. But there was no difference in post-operative delirium in, in these patients. Uh, it should be mentioned that that was a single institution study and they had a comprehensive delirium prevention strategy in place across the board. So that may well have impacted that outcome. Uh, and the other is they also, they did have quite a bit of birth suppression nonetheless in their intervention group, seven minutes during the case. Um, there was a slight mortality difference um, between the two groups, which did not hold up for a year though. So then that brings into comparison the study which, which we've published. And I think, as I said, it does sit alone in the sense that it, it's, it's targeting two different levels of BIS. So it really tells us about that. It tells us that if you aim for lighter anesthesia in comparison to aiming for deeper anesthesia, 
you may well have an effect on decreasing delirium uh, in, the, in, the, in the population that we looked at. Um, but it also, um, I guess, it does have, have, have some gaps in it as well, which we will need to address in the future. Um, can you translate that to the older fractured neck of femur patients? Um, certainly it's a guide. It informs our care. And there was no adverse outcome from using lighter anesthesia. So I would suggest that you can. Thanks, Professor Scott. And are there any aspects of the trial that you would change if you were doing it again? Well, as I've said a couple of times, I think it would be worth doing in the, in the high-risk populations that we're interested in. So uh, the fractured neck of femur patients in particular, the older patients who've got vulnerable brains, um, are at high risk of post-operative delirium. So I think that would be a good target group. Maybe also the uh, cardiac surgical group, um, a bit more challenging because of the challenges of cardiopulmonary bypass and that the effect that already has on, on um, cerebral activity. Uh, you often drift to a lower uh, BIS level during cardiopulmonary bypass. Um, also, I think uh, it needs to be acknowledged that we, we would want to uh, reflect this in a broader, broader subpopulation. So just through the nature of our recruiting, even though we're across multiple sites and multiple countries, uh, in the end, 79% of our patients were uh, Chinese from either mainland China or Hong Kong. Now, there, there has been shown to be pharmacogenetic differences with respect to the way um, different, different races do metabolise drugs. So it's, it's possible that we identified a more sensitive group to anaesthetic uh, exposure than might otherwise be characterised in, in a different population. So I think we just need, need to recognise that. Um, again, it, it provides us with information um, that we can, can use. But if we were doing it again, we I would, would want to recruit a broader uh, mix of, of subjects. And I guess the final point is there has been some comment that the, the deeper BIS group had more cardiovascular disease, 29% of those compared to 20% of those in the, in the lighter anesthesia group. That was just a quirk of randomization. It wasn't, uh, it was just the way it turned out. I don't really think that's, that's a critical difference, uh, but it, it should be acknowledged. Yes. And what aspects of this research do you think should be explored in the future? Well, I think uh, delirium is a clinical marker and what we have been researching is a biochemical markers as well. So biomarkers indicating neurological injury. And I think that would provide us with a bit more objective information about the impact of various stresses on the brain in terms of, um, and how that might relate to cognitive outcomes. So things like neurofilament light, PTAU and GFAP, for instance. So that would be a good direction to follow. And also, I think everyone would be interested to follow a bit more about type of anesthesia, type of general anesthesia. So propofol TIVA versus volatile agents, would that make a difference or wouldn't it? At the moment, we can't say that one of those is, is superior to the other. And then there are other drugs which have been shown to be effective in particularly in an intensive care environment like dexmedetomidine. Would they be useful perhaps as anti-inflammatory agents as well? Uh, in, in, in anaesthesia and surgery, because that hasn't been clearly demonstrated. But in the end, I think um, post-operative delirium, it's, it's a highly uh, electrophysiological as well as a neurochemical um, adverse event. And just like with pain, I think the prevention and treatment will always involve multiple and diverse strategies. No, there won't be one single uh, golden bullet. Thank you. Thanks once again for your time today, Professor Scott. It was a pleasure.
Thank you for joining us today to hear about the findings of the Balanced Delirium Study. I will include a link to the study publication in the British Journal of Anesthesia in your episode notes for today's podcast.